Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be at such an interesting and interdisciplinary and diverse uh, gathering. I'm going to cover a few issues which are outside my uh, outside my specific area of expertise, which is which is law. So I look forward to some criticism uh, when I when I stray outside my area of expertise. Um, so let's begin. When I was an undergraduate in the mid 1990s, uh, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit older than I might uh, I might look. Um, the, the conflict in the former Yugoslavia was unfolding, particularly in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I remember trying to follow what was happening through the newspapers, but my abiding memory was almost of a total incomprehension of the situation. But in 2001, shortly after I qualified as a lawyer. I went to work in Sarajevo um, for a human rights organisation. Since that time, I've spent many years in the region. Uh, I've relived the events of that period uh, through a number of cases, both in the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and the International Criminal Tribunal <coughs> for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. One of the most obviously puzzling aspects of the conflict was the contrast between the apparently stable country of Yugoslavia that was known to my parents and their grandparents, mainly through their holidays, and the horrific crimes committed by individuals against others who, in many cases, had been their immediate neighbours. Explanations that relied on ancient hatred seemed inadequate at accounting for the apparent stability for almost 50 years previous to the conflict. For me, one of the striking aspects of the disintegration of the state of Yugoslavia was the distinct religious and ethnic groups that replaced it. And while there were exceptions, these tended to be relatively short-lived. A significant proportion of Yugoslavs among of whom many were my friends, who were from mixed marriages who stayed in the region, were put under considerable pressure of the circumstances to choose which side to be on. I mean, one, of, one of my friends was, had one grandparent who was Croatian, one who was Serbian, one who was Jewish, and one who was Muslim. But he also faced that pressure to, 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 to side with one group or another. And we see a similar pattern seems to be manifested in other conflicts. Um, as at the present time in Syria, we can see the internal Sunni and Alawi division appears to have become more prominent with reports of increasing sectarian <coughs> violence. The Human Rights Department of the International Organisation that I worked for applied what's called a rule of law approach. In very basic terms, this meant working to enforce and uphold international human rights standards. One of the key standards was, of course, the right not to be discriminated against. But unsurprisingly, discrimination was common. In Sarajevo, where I spent much of my time hearing stories of atrocities that had been committed by anonymous Serbs, it was not difficult to understand why. And while the rule of, the rule of law is a key part of ensuring equality, I had the impression it was often inadequate for eliminating discrimination and that a deeper understanding was often needed, particularly in a post-conflict situation. And I'll return towards the end of my paper just to offer a few uh, 
observations about a particular example that I recall, and, and one which continues today, that I think may be relevant to some of the things which I, I'd like to say. But um, in seeking to offer some observations about religious conflict, I'm reminded of what I was told as a recent training that I attended for lawyers at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. One of the um, sessions was on the political situation in Lebanon, but we were told that anyone who says they understand Lebanese politics hasn't understood Lebanese politics. <laughs> so with a similar note of humility, I hope to offer some observations on religious conflict, while recognising that there is much that is not well understood to myself or to others. So in summary, I would like to explore how empirical evidence might be used to address religious conflict. The particular issue, or the general issue, that I would like to focus on is the situation, as in the former Yugoslavia, where individuals have previously cooperated at one level for a considerable period of time, but this cooperation ends and is replaced by smaller groups that instead cooperate on other criteria, particularly religious affiliation and where the religious groups engage in conflict with each other. <coughs> Before turning to the empirical evidence, I'll first examine from a theoretical perspective what standards we ought to require from empirical evidence. And in summary, I suggest that the goal of re reducing religious conflict will be better conceived of as what, what intervention would best contribute towards attaining the ends broadly defined of those affected. In addition to considering the ends of the party able to use the empirical evidence to intervene in some way, <coughs> my view is that we ought properly to take into account the ends of those affected by the potential intervention. If we do so, this imposes much more onerous requirements on our state of knowledge of the relevant empirical theory. Then I turn to the empirical evidence and associated theory that I consider has the potential, now or in the near future, to meet some of these more onerous requirements. And the evidence bears on one aspect of cooperation. Adopting the theory referred to as the argumentative theory of reasoning, propounded by Sperber, Mercier and their collaborators, I compare two important mechanisms of epistemic vigilance, namely ways in which individuals can assess the reliability of others as cooperative partners, trust calibration, and coherence checking. And I'll introduce the specific meaning of these mechanisms in due course. But in general terms, I suggest that trust calibration is the mechanism that is used when an individual decides to cooperate or not cooperate with another based on whether that other individual is of the same or a different religion. By contrast, coherence checking is a different mechanism that can overcome some of the shortcomings of trust calibration in the right circumstances. It can provide a robust mechanism of assessing the reliability of a potential cooperative partner. Given that our knowledge of the way trust calibration based on religion works is more limited, I focus instead on ways that coherence checking might be augmented to promote non-secretarian rather than sectarian cooperation. 
I then highlight aspects of the argumentative theory to show its proper domain, which can be thought of as those circumstances in which the ends of those affected by an intervention will be furthered. <coughs> in particular, I identify a number of important aspects to demonstrate that a proper understanding of the theory will be required to ensure that any intervention remains within the proper domain if undesirable consequences such as further polarisation of the parties <coughs> are to be avoided. Finally, while recognising the limitations on the theory such as the uncertain influence of other causes of religious conflict, I examine how the use of a theory could have been used to address a particular situation in the former Yugoslavia that arose post-conflict and that still persists to this day. <coughs> in very general terms, being a member of a group is fundamental for humans to realise their desired ends. In this paper, I'm going to use ends very broadly to encompass both basic human needs, such as nutrition and security, as well as human flourishing. I don't intend to presuppose any particular conception of human flourishing beyond the varying goals that each individual happens to have. Group membership offers benefits that are otherwise difficult or impossible for a lone individual to attain. Examples include <coughs> division of labour, specialisation and collective defence. These benefits tend to increase with group size, though that's not to say that everyone will benefit equally or at all from ever-increasing group sizes. A notable feature of human groups is their sheer size. It's obvious that humans commonly form groups that comprise a vastly larger number of individuals than they can individually keep track of. I'll return to the relevance of this observation later in the paper. As I mentioned in the introduction, one property that appears to play a key role in defining group membership is religion. <coughs> However, as there are other, or other properties that seem to play a similar role, such as ethnicity or nationality, a significant question arises at the outset whether religion is more or less effective compared to other properties for enabling individuals to cooperate to achieve their ends. This is a difficult and controversial area, but one that I don't believe is necessary to take a position on in order to make the points I wish to make in this paper. I will therefore just assume that religion amounts to a so-called badge of identity that can be used to identify one member of a group without necessarily assuming that it is the only factor that can do this. Moving on to empirical research, the prospects of empirical research to have some impact upon religious conflict are potentially at least quite large, and we've heard some this morning and we'll hear more uh, in the course of this conference. But to understand why this impact is potentially quite large, it's helpful, or may be helpful, to reflect on how wide the causes of religious conflict might be Humans are complex creatures. Our behaviour responds to cues in the environment in a very broad sense. These cues may range from information we gather using our own senses, to complex representations that we hear from others, and the complex representations or the complex relationships between these cues. 
Exactly which cues we rely upon are presently not well known, but they certainly exist. And while our current understanding of these cues is limited, even a partial understanding can be sufficient to have an impact. If research identifies a cue that potentially exists to have an impact on behaviour, thereby, thereby religious conflict, through avoiding or artificially generating that cue. Sperber and Hirschfeld call the circumstances in which a behaviour is disposed to trigger the actual domain. Importantly, cues falling within the actual domain need not have formed part of any environment that's ever previously existed. In other words, empirical research may open up the possibility of interventions that have never previously been possible in human history. Julian, for example, <coughs> mentioned the potential for using synthetic drugs to alter the way individuals behave in specific circumstances. Um, and while some of these cues may be intuitively obvious, such as perhaps experiencing religious discrimination, other cues may not be obvious at all. In terms of possible interventions for other aspects of human behaviour, a wide range have been identified. Some illustrative examples include damage to regions of the brain, hypnotism, mood induction, changing someone's, someone's mood, priming using keywords, creating a disgusting environment, and even simply asking someone to hold a warm cup of coffee. While such techniques may not necessarily be practical or ethical, they do illustrate the kinds of intervention that may be possible. But beyond feasibility, I suggest that there are a number of further general requirements that need to be met if empirical research is to be used to address religious conflict. To show why I think this is so, let us return to reconsider our ultimate goal. Up to this point, we have been describing our goal quite generally as that of reducing religious conflict. But my view is that this is too general, and let me explain why. Religious conflict, or any conflict for that matter, almost always comes at a high price. In the abstract, conflict is seen by the majority of people as a negative thing. But I think we should take care not to assume that this is invariably the case. The reason for seeing conflict as negative, as a negative thing, is not, I suggest, because it is invariably bad, but because of its effect on the attainment of human ends. To put it another way, there will be more people who would choose conflict as a means to another end than people who would seek conflict for its own sake. It seems to be possible to conceive of circumstances in which conflict amounts to a route to achieve particular individuals' desired ends. For example, in some circumstances, an oppressed religious minority could well achieve their ends better through engaging in conflict rather than tolerating the status quo. It's also important to consider and be clear what if one is comparing a conflict situation to. For example, if one compares the situation in the former Yugoslavia to the situation well, pre-Yugoslavia to the situation uh, thereafter, it seems that the former situation would have been a better vehicle for achieving the ends of the people there. But this may not be a proper comparison. 
The situation that prevailed during the period of apparent stability may no longer be realisable, perhaps because of changes to the economy, to those in leadership positions, or to nationalist tendencies of one or more of the other parties. <coughs> the proper comparison ought really to be whether there is a practical alternative to engaging in conflict in the circumstances prevailing at that time. And for these reasons, I suggest that we should recognise that there may be some scenarios which, in which conflict best achieves human ends. At the very least, it's very difficult to rule this possibility out. So for these reasons, considering the realisation of human ends seems to more accurately <coughs> represent the goal we wish to achieve in the circumstances. But if this is the case, the next question that follows logically is how to assess whether an intervention that research appears to show to be effective at addressing religious conflict will contribute or undermine the achievement of the individual's ends. There seem to be two ways of approaching this question. If the question is examined from only the perspective of the party with the capacity to make use of the intervention, then the answer is more straightforward and consists of a, a cost-benefit analysis. But... If, however, the question is broadened, as I submit it should be, to consider also whether it's in the interests of those who are actually engaged in religious conflict, then the question becomes somewhat more difficult. To illustrate why I think this is so, it helps to introduce Sperber and Hirschfeld's related concept of the proper domain. The proper domain falls within the actual domain. Whereas the actual domain consists of all circumstances where a behaviour is disposed to trigger, the proper domain is more narrow and represents those circumstances where the behaviour is a response to an opportunity for, or a threat to, that individual. For the purposes of this paper, the proper domain can be taken to amount to those circumstances that promote an individual's exact ends. I'm going to ask you to just assume some facts for a moment, then we'll consider them in a little bit more detail. So, for example, the circumstances that cause an individual to defend him or herself against religious persecution might <coughs> fall within the proper domain, but those circumstances that cause an individual to become a suicide bomber might not, assuming both, and of course, both circumstances fall within the actual domain. So it follows from this definition that an intervention could either undermine or promote the achievement of an individual's ends. If an, indivi if an intervention caused behaviour to fall outside the proper domain when it would otherwise fall inside, it would undermine an individual's ends. So assuming that defending oneself from religious persecution falls within the proper domain, then an intervention that caused a person not to defend themselves and resulted in the later massacre of that individual <coughs> and their group that would undermine that individual's ends. By contrast, if an intervention caused behaviour to fall within the proper domain when it would not otherwise, then that would promote an individual's ends. So, assuming that becoming a suicide bomber undermines that individual's ends, an intervention that prevented this and instead resulted in the individual having a long and fulfilled life would promote that individual's ends. The problem arises and the difficulty of identifying the proper domain. While I ask you to assume in these two examples that we could 
uh, identify or assume what the proper domain is. In real life, it's not so simple. Humans are hugely complicated and diverse creatures. Our interactions with others add a further layer of complexity. Understanding the complex chains of cause and effect um, is extremely difficult. So identifying part of the actual domain may be sufficient to influence religious conflict, but given the current state of research, it's very difficult to identify the proper domain. This means it's currently rarely possible to tell whether the intervention promotes or undermines the achievement of the ends of the individuals effective, effective. Without the full picture, what may appear to be in the short-term interests of an individual or group of individuals could instead have adverse longer-term effects. In summary, if the emphasis is on furthering the ends of the party responsible for the intervention, this may be less of a concern. But if the emphasis is on developing policy responses that also take into account the interests of the individual influence, this uncertainty seems to pose a serious problem. Having identified some of the requirements for the use of empirical research to address religious conflict, I'd like to introduce and explore a theory that I believe may have the potential to fulfil these requirements, either now or in the near future. I'll then consider, briefly, how the theory may have the potential to make a positive contribution to reducing religious conflict. It's based on a theory of reasoning called the argumentative theory of reasoning propounded by Sperber, Mercier and their collaborators. To introduce the relevance of the theory, I'm going to return to one of the themes that I identified at the outset of the the paper, that of cooperation. As I previously mentioned, individuals will generally be able better to achieve their ends through cooperation with others. But this leads to a well-known issue, the dilemma of cooperation. While cooperation can bring great benefits, betrayal can cause great loss. There's therefore a challenge faced by any individual who needs the assistance of others of determining whether or not other potential partners for cooperation are trustworthy. And there are different methods of checking the reliability of others. Sperber calls these mechanisms of epistemic vigilance. And I'd like to introduce and focus on two, two of the most important, trust calibration and coherence checking. Trust calibration is the assessment of how trustworthy an individual is on the basis of their perceived competence and benevolence. In other words, using what's known about a potential partner to assess how reliable that other is. In a smaller group, where it's easier to keep track of the behaviour of others, considerable information may be available. However, in very large groups, such as those who might engage in religious conflict, such as in the former Yugoslavia, it will be much more difficult. One could consider that trust calibration is the main mechanism that's being used when an individual uses the religion of another to assess their trustworthiness. Absent special circumstances, I suggest that an individual of the same religion would tend to be assessed as more trustworthy as a potential cooperative partner than an individual of a different religion. 
As may be seen, trust calibration is not always an effective method of epistemic vigilance. This is because those who are generally unreliable may be informed and reliable on a particular topic and vice versa. So systematically trusting or systematically distrusting another individual on the basis of their religion is likely to result in opportunities <coughs> when they are let down or missed opportunities to cooperate. The other key mechanism of epistemic vigilance is coherence checking. Coherence checking is made possible because of communication. However, communication alone is insufficient to overcome the dilemma of cooperation because an individual could just as well misrepresent their intentions as tell the truth. Coherence checking therefore involves going a step further. It entails checking the coherence of the communicator's message with information already known to the addressee, addressee in order to assess the probability of the message being true. The assumption behind this is that information that is coherent with other information will be more reliable than that which is not. However, incoherence may also mean that the other information may need to be reviewed. But crucially, coherence checking is a, is a, is a technique, technique that can be used both by the addressee and by the communicator. So rather than the communicator simply providing information to the addressee for the addressee to check for coherence, the communicator can actively select and communicate premises that demonstrate the coherence of the message. So it's more advantageous for a communicator to make an honest display of the consistency that the addressee is checking anyhow than just to rely upon the addressee checking it for themselves. Sperber and Mercier argue that these additional premises are what we know as argumentation or reasoning, hence the title, The Argumentative Theory of Reasoning. In this way, reasoning contributes to the effectiveness and reliability of communication by permitting communicators to argue for their claim and enabling addressees to address those arguments, leading to an increase in both quantity and quality of epistemic information that humans are able to share. As Sperber and Mercier point out, a persistent liar could convince others of the mathematical proof by providing the truth. Similarly, in a, in a religious conflict, someone from another religion who may generally be dis distrusted by someone of a different religion, then providing the premises such as a mathematical proof which can be checked for coherence can permit a level of cooperation which isn't available through simple trust, trust calibration. So if this is possible, coherence checking can pr promote the type of cooperation that doesn't depend on religious affiliation and can there thereby contribute to the goal of attaining the ends of the individuals concerned. Let's focus in a little bit more detail. Having introduced coherence checking as a possible mechanism for addressing one aspect of religious con conflict, I think it's important to unpack it a little in order to try and find out whether or not or how it will meet the requirements for the use of empirical evidence that I outlined earlier. This un involves understanding more about coherence checking in order to identify the contours of the proper domain, 
It's important because Spurbian Mercer's argument, argumentative theory predicts that the proper domain is quite specific. Simply enabling individuals from different religions to communicate may be insufficient to per- permit coherence checking and may instead aggravate a conflict situation. Probably the most fundamental difference with Spurbian and Mercy's approach compared to others is their view of the function of conscious reasoning. Traditional and widely held views of reasoning have been called classical, platonic or Cartesian. From these perspectives, reasoning resembles the actions of a chief executive. Some cognition takes place subconsciously, but it's ultimately the conscious that's in charge. Associated with this conception is a widely held view that the function of reasoning is to serve the individual's own cognitive goals, such as permitting more effective decision-making, dealing with novel situations, or planning for the future. As such, reasoning is a process that achieves its ends just as effectively when carried out by an individual without reliance on others. Collective wisdom is therefore merely a byproduct, and traditional theories would imply there's little context dependence in reasoning. By contrast, more recent ideas about reasoning have suggested that conscious reasoning is instead more like a press secretary, in that it reports on the actions of the subconscious and tries to put the best spin on what's taking place. Sperber and Mercier's argumentative theory is closer to this camp. They identify two distinct cognitive systems. System one consists of the lion's share of cognitive processing. Most of this takes place at a subconscious or subpersonal level. The function of system two is to produce and evaluate arguments in interpersonal <coughs> communication. So system two, reasoning, is an evaluation and persuasion mechanism rather than a direct knowledge production mechanism, though it may often produce knowledge. They argue that reasoning is primarily social and the other advantages it provides to the individual are side effects. Those spur and mercy refer to two cognitive systems. It's important to be clear that these systems don't correspond with the two systems propounded by other dual process theorists in which Conscious reason and intuition are often thought of as two contrasting cognitive systems. Sperber and Mercy's theory seems counterintuitive in that it's not immediately obvious how the theory fits with the introspective sense that we have that our thinking is a, a unitary and integrated process. But conscious access to our thought process is extremely poor. In particular, introspection does not give us a true picture of the extent to which our cognition depends on subconscious inferences, a claim that was controversial in philosophy before the dawn of cognitive science. For example, if one hears that somebody has deliberately attacked and killed civilians, one would normally conclude that this was wrong. Though one could provide many arguments such <coughs> why such killing was wrong, all the arguments together would not amount to a complete description of the cognitive process that took place. This reason, cognition is sometimes described as enthematic, in that many of the intermediate steps may not be consciously entertained at all. In addition to postulating a function for what we call reasoning, the argumentative theory is also promising due to its apparent fit with the empirical evidence. 
Research suggests that people are generally quite poor at reasoning, and the reasoning process is prone to a variety of errors. Another problem is that the uh, is the quantity of empirical evidence that indicates that system two reasoning tends to rationalise rather than correct system one reasoning. As the title of the theory would suggest, it predicts that people are better at arguing, but it also predicts that people will not be good at arguing generally. This is because system two cognitive resources are costly. Where one is not motivated or challenged, it makes sense to be satisfied with relatively superficial arguments. The theory instead predicts aptitude when participants have a stake in the outcome but challenged on their arguments. And this appears to be borne out by the evidence. Aptitude for arguing does seem to depend on the context, and people can be extremely good at it provided they have the right circumstances. For example, while around half the subjects tested on a range of standard modus tollens reasoning types <coughs> failed, jurors in a reenacted legal case who were asked to explain and justify their verdict appear to handle complex modus tollens arguments with apparent ease. Consistent with the interpersonal purpose of reasoning, evidence suggests that groups are more successful than the sum of their individual parts, provided that the individuals within the groups are permitted to produce and evaluate each other's arguments. When a demonstrably correct answer is defended in the group, arguments that support this answer tend to be accepted. An illustrative example used by Sperber and Mercer is the bat and ball problem. This is as follows. A bat and ball costs $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? I don't know if any... <laughs> Well, someone knows the answer. Uh, most people obviously answer 10 cents, and, and for people unfamiliar with the problem, that's probably the first thing that popped into their minds. But the correct answer is, in fact, 5 cents. These sorts of problems are contained in the Watson selection task, a commonly studied problem in the psychology of reasoning. Moshman and Gahr presented these tasks to individuals and groups with notable results. Only 9% of the tasks were solved correctly by individuals, but 75% of groups, consisting of five or six interacting peers, correctly solved the problems. The superior performance doesn't seem to be explained by group members recognising the ability of particular individuals, nor of simple sharing of information, nor of increased motivation. And a final aspect of the theory worth noting uh, to show the importance of identifying the proper domain is the notorious pattern of confirmation bias, a ubiquitous feature of reasoning that cannot easily be suppressed. Confirmation bias is where individuals select evidence and arguments in accordance with a predetermined view, much as a lawyer might seek evidence to defend a client rather than weighing evidence and arguments impartially. One of the most notable examples is Lord Knowles' study into the attitudes towards the death penalty. In this classic study, subjects consistently rated the quality of reported studies into the effectiveness of the death penalty according to whether they matched with the subjects' pre-existing attitudes towards the death penalty. In a follow-up experiment, subjects instructed to be objective and unbiased in fact made even more biased ratings. 
Similarly, subjects participating in the Watson 246 task, in which they're given triplets of numbers and asked to identify the rule that generates those triplets, generally fail to use falsification, a very effective method, even when instructed to do so. By contrast, students readily adopted, subjects readily adopted a strategy of falsification when they believed they were testing somebody else. Sperber and Mercier suggest that confirmation bias is a feature rather than a bug, in that if reason is essentially for persuading rather than for inquiry, there will be circumstances where persuading others will be much more important than undertaking impartial inquiry. And given that individuals also exhibit confirmation bias when they don't have a particular stake in the view they adopt, there may be other advantages to this, such as permitting the group to explore a larger range of options. A good understanding of such factors is important if this type of empirical work is to be used effectively to address matters such as religious conflict. For example, while the confirmation bias may have a, a useful function in the right context, outside that context it can have unhelpful consequences. For example, when participants already agree, argumentation may cause them to become more polarised than they were before. So in summary, I suggest that empirical research does have the potential to make a positive contribution towards addressing religious conflict, provided certain conditions are met. In particular, within the actual domain where an intervention will have an effect on individuals' behaviour, the proper domain where the intervention will contribute towards the achievement of the ends of the individual effective needs to be understood. If it is not, the intervention may promote the ends of the intervening party but have an uncertain or negative effect on the ends of the individuals affected by that intervention. If one cause of religious conflict is that individuals involved in that conflict are only able to use trust calibration based on others' religion to determine who to cooperate with, then intervening to create an environment in which another type of epistemological vigilance, namely coherence checking, is available. This may have a positive impact on the religious conflict. However, in order to promote cooperation through trust calibration, a good understanding of the proper domain is needed. Some aspects that are highlighted from the theory are that the participants need to be motivated to achieve the goal. There needs to be diversity of views, and the task is better undertaken as part of a group. A note of caution is also advisable. As I recognised at the outset, religious conflict is a complicated matter with many possible causes, of which the issue being discussed is only one. Much of the evidence is from empirical research in which the variables are carefully controlled. Coherence checking is only one potential method that might be used to further the ends of those involved in religious conflict by promoting forms of cooperation to less dependent on the religious affiliation of potential partners for cooperation. Crucially, however, the efficacy of such mechanisms will depend on other causes in ways that are not entirely apparent from the theory. For this reason, some caution ought to be exercised in developing policy responses (coughs) to religious conflict on building non-religious conflict through facilitating coherence checking. I'd like to finish by focusing on a situation which um, 
was familiar to me in the former Yugoslavia um, when I worked there, and that was in 2000. And what had happened was that uh, during the conflict, as happens in any conflict, people try and get on with the other important aspects of their lives, one of which was continuing to have their children educated. But that had led, because of the, um, the religious nature of the conflict, it had become totally impractical for children of different religions to continue to be educated at the same schools they had been educated at during the conflict. So there was a very rapid process where many of the schools were split, particularly in the area which was Muslim Croat. Schools which were previously integrated and uh, they'd have, they, they felt followed, for one week they'd follow a Serbian curriculum in um, Cyrillic, and next week they'd follow a curriculum in um, Croatian text, the um, Latin text. During the conflict they became separated. And they were sometimes very, still very close together, the schools, but in separate buildings, but following separate curricula. When the conflict ended, there was a desire, and there seemed to be a desire, at least from the participants, to have some form of reintegration. And there was also great pressure from the international community to try and reintegrate these, these schools. But at the same time, there was a great deal of resistance to, to, to reintegration. So one, one policy which I, I was familiar with, and it wasn't something that I was directly involved in, but it's something which I remember, I remember um, being aware of it and, and also being, at the time, not entirely convinced whether or not it was an it was a, it was a, it was a effective or sensible idea. But let me, let me just introduce the situation. The parents, of, the parents of the children weren't prepared to accept their children going to school together and following the same curriculum. So the, the kind of compromise which was chosen was what's called two schools under one roof. And it seemed to be the case that the parents would accept that the, the old schools which were previously used would continue to be used at the same time by the two communities. But they would follow separate criteria and have separate classes. And this was known as the policy of two schools under one roof. Now, I haven't worked directly in, in Bosnia or Sarajevo on general human rights work for a very, very long time. But it always seemed to me that uh, this was, a, this was a, an interim step which would later move to greater integration. <coughs> Perhaps children would, would be having know, physical education classes together, things which weren't, weren't contentious, and then gradually move towards... Uh, full integration. But um, whilst doing some research, I looked into what had happened with the two schools under one roof. And this was, this was back in 2000, 2001. And it seems that uh, there's been no change. Even today, two schools under one roof is practically at the same stage as it was back at that, at that time. And I was, it occurs to me that potentially on the subject of the qualifications which I mentioned at the outset, this was something which might be addressed better through understanding some of the, the factors outlined by the proper domain of the argumentative theory. So, it seems to me that... Um, sorry, I've gone off, gone off script a little. 
<coughs> as the as the policy that was identified that was implemented was very much a top-down policy implementation, there was very little opportunity for those affected from the different communities to use a different mechanism of um, epistemic vigilance, namely uh, coherence checking, to build confidence and, and, and move to cooperation. And as a result, the main mechanism of epistemic vigilance would have been trust calibration based on just the very basic knowledge that people running the school were from a different ethnicity and <coughs> religion. And the supposed interim step of two schools under one roof um, also exhibited a similar problem and could even make the goal of non-secular cooperation more elusive because pupils will continue to be uh, educated along very stark divisive lines. They weren't, they weren't being grouped in classes by reference to their neighbourhood, their ability, their age. They're instead being grouped according to very strict criteria, that of religion, religious affiliation, which gives them the ability to, 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 to use one form of, of um, epistemic vigilance. It doesn't give them the opportunity to use uh, coherence checking through proper argumentation with those um, of a different ethnicity. So how could this have been handled differently? Well, if non-secular cooperation was to be encouraged through facilitating coherence checking, the important requirement that we've identified would be a goal that would best have been achieved through cooperation. Perhaps this could have been the better use of the existing educational resources or reintegration itself. The latter goal appeared to appeal particularly to the Bosniak side and thereafter, rather than the end state being imposed top-down, it might have been better worked out bottom-up by those affected on both sides being able to reassure themselves of the intentions of others. In a post-conflict situation where atrocities have been committed by neighbours against neighbours, this would appear to be a crucial aspect of reassuring those involved with the intentions of those potentially involved in the education of their children. Perhaps the types of reassurance that might be sought by parents would be the exclusion of known and identified wrongdoers from involvement, or correspondingly, the, re the knowledge of the reliability and respectability of teachers or those involved in the running of the school. Harnessing discussion and debate as part of a group seeking a common goal could result in novel solutions that might not be envisaged in top-down impl implementation. As a result, solutions adopted may bear may borne limited resemblance to those in other countries that have not experienced this type of conflict. An advantage of this approach could be the potential for those affected to undertake these types of steps with little or no dependence on outside parties. Though those seeking to intervene in post-conflict situations often do so with the best of intentions, they also may have other agenda. Whether justified or not, those in post-conflict situations may resent or distrust the intervention of others. A solution which isn't dependent on the intervention of third parties would seem to be a better overall solution, all things considered. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much for that very analytical and um, wide-ranging talk. Um, I should say, I'm not used to reading things out. It's a very uh, unusual experience <laughs> for me. Um, great, so now we have time for questions. Um, yes, please. So, um, 
trust calibration, I think that that was a little bit of a straw man because trust calibration isn't labeling religion thing. It's it's an assessment of the degree of commitment, usually through some kind of demonstrative acts. And so that those demonstrative acts themselves also use a type of coherence checking, mm -hmm. is whether they're consistent or not with the set of beliefs people have. If you just use coherence checking, you have several problems in the absence of any prior trust calibration. First, people actually do believe if they're not philosophers or uh, people in academia, that the purpose of, trust co of this coherence calibration is to persuade and to have victory. So the prior thing of people who don't already share a common framework is they're going to be suspicious that the other one is simply interested in persuading and victory. So somehow you've got to overcome that before you even engage in this coherence. So you're right, they have to share it all. They, what, you, what you're trying to do is say, well, this coherence manipulation is basically you want these two groups to get together to, to come together, on, they agree on the same goal, and now they're going to figure out which way to match their preferences to achieve that goal mutually. Again, that seems to work only when people are already in a state where they're willing to give the other the benefit of the doubt, mm. that they're genuinely interested in achieving the common goals, and that's the whole problem to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I quite agree with you. Um, as I said, I didn't propose, didn't try to propose a solution for for all the all the um, uh, all the problems of religious conflict because they are enormous. But I think it's. Uh, as an illustration of, I think, the, the, the way forward as this, this, within a very narrow domain, provided you can get to that narrow domain. I think it has, um, it certainly has potential. Um, and I was thinking, for example, Aaron's example this morning of the similar end state envisaged by Israelis and Palestinians, that 70% of them see a similar end state of a two-state solution, but they're they're not re they're not they're not reassured. the The environment doesn't seem to be right for them to be uh, reassured of the intentions of the others, for example. And there may be many steps which need to be undertaken before they can get to that that steps. And and there are, there are many, but one could be the knowledge through empirical research that within a certain, a certain environment. Coherence checking can be a, an effective way of working. It's something which they don't need to rely upon the intervention necessarily of outside parties. It's something that, you know, this is the evidence for it, take it or leave it in the right circles, I think. But yes, the, one of my main points is that in empirical, empirical circumstances, within tightly constrained circumstances, it works. But we all know that real life isn't like that. Uh, in those idealised situations, it works. But we, do, we will need to build the bigger picture. Um, one of the things which I didn't uh, cover in a great deal is the religious aspect of, of conflict. Or religion, not necessarily as... Uh, 
as its role in conflict, but its role generally in human behaviour. Uh, I don't pretend to be an expert on that. And when you combine something like epistemic vigilance with religion, there are all sorts of different dynamics going on. And I recognise, yes, there is, there is a bigger picture. Roger. Uh, Paul Abraham said um, that there might be occasions in which conflict um, was the best way to satisfy people's ends. And I can imagine philosophical uh, examples where that would be true. Mm. Uh, clearly, there are cases in the real world where it's true, where one of the ends is actually to have conflict. Mm. Are, there other, are there other cases? I mean, I'm just inclined to think that. In all real-life cases, there are other alternatives which are better. I I, I agree. Um, my point my point was 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 about not automatically drawing that assumption. Just to kind of to illustrate a point um, in relation to, to the use of empirical evidence. In general terms, I think that, that it's probably possible to always find a better way than conflict. But the question becomes, how practical, how practical is that? It may be that it's not practical because people don't have the knowledge about what would be a better route to do it. Or it may be that there is a, there is a better route, but that it's practically not feasible because of the complexity of arranging it, resources required, or different other, other factors. So I, I accept... Yes, there's always going to be, um, there's probably theoretically, always a better solution than conflict. But the question becomes, how, how easy is it to get to that situation? And if we're looking at the goal of, of reducing religious conflict, I think we have to look at what the empirical research t tells us about what's feasible and what's, what's not feasible. So it may be, it may be that um, someday in the future there will be a mechanism for, for, for solving conflict in a much better way than we do now. But in order to understand that that, that people start irrational when they engage in conflict, um, I think it's it's a slightly <coughs> dangerous assumption to if you do assume that they're irrational, mm. what you should you should. You, you, you should assume, I think, that, this, that there may be at least, there may be at least, some kind of rationality in the choice to, to go for the conflict, based on the limited knowledge of the alternatives available, not compared to what alternatives there might be in every theoretical possibility or every theoretical sense. Well, it could be that the distinction between subjective and objective rationality helps in the. I can, I, can, I can certainly imagine cases where it's subjectively rational for people to engage in conflict in, in the cases you describe, but, but objectively, there is always a better way, right? I, I, yes. It's just they don't know what it is. Yes, yes. I, I think there's, there's also a, a point in relation to um, uh, the, the, the subjectively... Sub, yeah, the, 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 the sub subjective irrationality is also quite important because um, there, there could be two, two explanations for us engaging in a, in a conflict. It could be that in the choice available to us, it's the best that we have. Or it could be that it's not the best that we have, that for some 
some irrationality that we have, perhaps a misunderstanding or idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy or something of that matter. We think it is, but it's not. But yeah, I think it's a very useful distinction. Please. Well, just, just on this point, I was thinking, um, and more generally about our, our theme, uh, whether, the, whether the notion of conflict is essentially uh, one of violent conflict in what you were talking about and what was coming out of Roger, um, <coughs> because there are other sorts of conflict. Mm. Um, and uh, it's not clear that conflict's always a bad thing. Um, if you if you think in terms of uh, say the subjective and objective rationality story, uh, then the adversary system in in English law is a conflictual system, mm. uh, which is at least alleged, uh, you know, to, uh, mm. to promote various good ends, um, rational ends, um, and uh, it's a case where it might well be argued that there isn't an alternative that's that's better than that. Uh, this is contentious because I mean I think we have far too holy an attitude to the adversary system in law, but it's at least a, a candidate, it seems, for that sort of thing. And even in the case of violence, it might be that um, I mean I'm sympathetic with Roger in all sorts of ways on this, but it might well be that an oppressed group uh, actually has no alternative uh, than a violent reaction. Mm. Uh, uh, just law theory would say it's got to be a last resort. Um, and you might want to argue for a version of pacifism in terms of which uh, that last resort you know, is never really satisfied by the mm, resort mm. of violence. But at least it looks on the, on the map as a, um, as a candidate for the kind of thing you were, I think you were getting at, though you were putting it much more narrowly in terms of the ends these people might be pursuing, whatever they are. Yes. Uh, whereas I'm thinking of these as being good ends. Um, I'm not quite sure what aspect of the question I, I should address. Um, in terms, of, in terms of the the, the point about what what definition of conflict um, I, I use, I think this 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 is a difficult area and one which I don't have a, a neat answer to. It seems to me that if you consider violent conflict, then that the, there may well be advantages, but in general terms, it's quite a costly, risky, risky business. Um, <coughs> and I, I, I also take your point that some form of conflict is is almost invariably uh, a, a way, of, or, or in, in terms of a mismatch between different, different agenda, can be a very effective way of getting to better solutions. Well, political parties are another, another case. Yes. Uh, again, there are downsides. As there, are, as there are in the legal system, but it might overall at least be a case argued for them. Well, as, it's as interesting. Well. There's an interesting parallel with what uh, Mercer and Spurbia s- say about their theory, which is <coughs> rather than individuals each doing what, what is generally said to be the best, <coughs> what appears to be intuitively to, to be the best uh, outcome, a better outcome can sometimes be generated by everyone just having a random. Uh, view as to what's best, and then fighting out all the, all those all those alternatives because it means that if most people, what I say, if if everyone goes for the best answer, then you only get one obvious answer which is explored. Whereas if you get everyone in the room propounding something, 
dedicating their resources to, to putting forward that, that one issue, even if it sounds at the first instance totally wacky, with the dedication to resources putting into that, actually, you can get a much better solution because it means there's a much wider space that's explored of alternatives. So yes, um, it's a, it's the, the, what, co what conflict actually is is, is, a, is a very, very tricky one because I think in some, some instances it can be constructive um, and the focus really is, and again, this, this comes back to the point I wanted to make, which was it's dangerous to assume that religious conflict is, is always bad, or to assume that, that conflict is always bad. It's much better to concentrate on, is whatever is taking place moving towards achieving the aims of the individuals concerned? There's obviously there's an assumption that conflict is often, is often bad, but... I think there are circumstances where it's just dangerous to, to assume it's, it's bad in all circumstances, at least in terms of understanding what's going on and predicting how things can be better, rather than like a general moral view to take towards a situation such as pacifism. More questions? I had a question, actually. So um, the theory that you're drawing on is, a, is an epistemic theory, right? So it's a, it's a theory about reasoning and you're saying basically there's, there's these two approaches to sort of working out whether to trust the judgment of this person. One is to say, ah, it's that kind of person, that kind of person is trustworthy, therefore I'll treat them like an expert. And the other is if you're in a situation where you're able to test sort of is this person's judgment, are, are this person's judgments kind of cohering with my understanding of the world? Yes. Um, and I was just curious, how do, so, so that seems like a way of testing the reliability of judgments about sort of facts of the matter or something, does it extend then also to finding out that the person is sort of morally trustworthy or something, or to some, some sort of value judgment of the person? Yeah, it, it seems it, like it's, often... It, it, yeah. I think it can be used with anything. Um, Merce and Sperber give a theory in very, in very general terms just about pretty much, pretty much anything. Um, but Merce in particular has extended it to, to moral judgments. Okay. Because you, because you, because you, you could use it to find out about someone's moral commitments. They say, "Well, I, I'm never cruel to animals," um, but then you can check that by whether. I don't know, that's probably not a great example. But if you know the examples when someone has been cruel to animals, you know that in general they're they're not being truthful about their representing their intentions to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in theory, you could use it for, for practically anything, I think. That seems like a really important aspect of the application to the conflict situation. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, I, 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 think, I think it also, also potentially touches on some of the themes which we've, which we've, we've, we've looked at. Um, this kind of the, the reassurance that, that, that we've looked at the Israeli-Palestinian situation a, a few times. The reassurance that, um, that 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 one side wants from another, assuming that, that there is a better common goal, say cooperation, this process of looking to see what the other side says about things. Do you recognise my suffering? Do you you know? Because if someone says yes, that's that's one of the first steps as, into to finding out whether they actually do. But then the next thing is well. How do you recognise my suffering? Do you behave consistently with someone who recognises my mm -hmm. suffering? Do you do you change your documents to show mm -hmm. that you know it's not just you saying it; it's the document that you 
that you promote amongst Palestinians or Israelis, for example? Is your behaviour consistent with that? That's kind of the next, next step that could potentially be used, I think, to start to build up um, a bit more trust and cooperation between different parties that otherwise have got very little to go upon. Just the kind of the, um, the stories that, 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 that the sides tell primarily for their own side, mm. and then that's interpreted in a certain way by the other side, and, and that's, that's not really the domain of the argumentative theory. The argumentative theory requires an opportunity to be able to exchange these, these mm. arguments, examine them, uh, examine whether or not they're coherent with other behaviour, other information that's, that's known to, to the person doing the checking. Okay, thank you. Are there other questions? Oh, yeah. Please. Um, you were only decrying the chief executive view of rationality, but it strikes me that really science itself needs something like that, because standing back from scientific theories and trying to choose between them surely demands that kind of view of rationality, doesn't it? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I... I I, I don't. I don't necessarily think that, um, uh, and I'm not an expert. I'm a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I'm. I'm very sympathetic, or, or I'm not very sympathetic to the chief executive model. I know it's the one we intuitively all have, um, but just because we cannot um, articulate why we prefer a, 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 a certain approach, a, a certain. Um, empirical theory doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that there's no logic to the way that we assess the theory. Just because we don't we don't assess it in this kind of chief executive domain that's accessible to consciousness, and we can articulate it. Um, it seems to me that there is some way that we're assessing scientific theory. Um, or, or the alternative approach is that actually um, a lot of the approach to assessing scientific theories is somewhat hidden this. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, <coughs> I'm not, not articulating myself terribly clearly. Focus on the, on the first, first book. I don't, I don't think it necessarily is implied that you need to assess a scientific theory consciously in a way you can articulate. It's also possible, I think, to articulate or understand and assess um, a, a certain theory without, without doing it in a kind of chief executive conscious place because it's what we, it's what we do all the time anyway um, though we think much of all we think intuitively that everything we do uh, is accessible to consciousness, in actual fact it's not there's very little um, that we that we, that, that we that we totally can articulate at a conscious level I know that the the, the example that everyone gives is you know, interviews. You interview you interview someone and they, they, they give you they give you reasons. You ask them questions as why you should offer them the job. Some of them obviously you can articulate the person has got a uh, fair, fair research background. Uh, they're articulate. They've got experience, etc., etc. But there's also a whole range of other other things which aren't immediately articulated consciously, such as uh, presentation, um, similar background, all, all sorts of things that psychology demonstrates. There's a, there's a much bigger assessment going on 
than simply the, the things that we can articulate. So I, I guess in terms of assessing any theory, it's better if we can articulate why we're preferring it. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything is articulated consciously, or at least it seems that way to me. Then that means we can't share it with others. So it's much more of an individual thing. And that isn't quite how people see science, is it? Well, it's, um, well, it's the same problem whether you think of it as science or even in the terms of morality. I think morality is also <coughs> a very good um, example. It's better if we can articu articulate why we feel a certain way. But there are whole swathes of human behaviour, moral behaviour, important values that we just can't articulate. Um, Scott mentioned human rights. Um, people, people feel very strongly that they're prepared to sacrifice themselves even for human rights. But the idea of what human rights is, you can kind of say in a certain situation, that is a breach of my human rights. You can't really explain the whole story as to why, what that human right is, where it comes from, how you define when that human right is going to be engaged, when it's not going to be engaged. So in general terms, in terms of communicating, there's a much, there's a much, it's better if you can not only have the view, whether it's of a scientific theory or a moral theory, and you can articulate it. But if you can't articulate it, I don't think necessarily, if you can't articulate I don't think necessarily that means that it's devoid of all content. Okay. I think we're ready to uh, thank our speaker. So.